Rabbi Ted, the radio show of Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma. My name is Jim Stern. I've been engineering for Ted for all these times that he's been doing this show, and I'm the executive vice president of B'nai Israel, and um, I, uh, I'm going to interview a few people today for you, a couple. The second uh, segment, we're going to be interviewing Pam Torliot, the former mayor of Petaluma, with an interesting life. But first, we're going to start out with Morty Wiggins. Morty is a, a mover and shaker in the in the music industry, so welcome to the show, Morty. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. So let's talk a little bit about where you came from and how you got out here. Well, I moved out to uh, Sonoma, right to Sonoma County, right to Santa Rosa in 1975, the winter of 1975. I was uh, a young man working with a folk rock band, and uh the folk rock band's lead singer lived in Santa Rosa. Uh, at the time, he worked for IBM uh, that had an office in Santa Rosa. And so we all came out to California, kind of like, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies kind of thing. Right? <laughs> California. Um, and I've been out here off, you know, on and off ever since. Well, that's right to, right to, Sonoma, right to Santa Rosa. Right that's to Santa Rosa, yeah. If, uh, if, if the singer's brother hadn't lived in Santa Rosa, then uh, we wouldn't have come out here. But uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad he did, and uh, I'm glad to be here. And you came from New Jersey? Came from New Jersey, northern New Jersey, Bergen County. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the band was from uh, the uh, Hudson River Valley, uh, New York, uh, by uh, Beacon, New York. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, we're all just right around the metropolitan New York area. Right. But you were actually born in Canada, weren't you? I was born in Toronto, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're a transplant twice now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So in 83, you went to work for Bill Graham, yes? Yeah, I went to work for Bill Graham. Um, I, I was, uh, <clears throat> before that, I was uh, promoting concerts in Sonoma County. Uh, I had, uh, I, I was very young. I was very young at the time. I was, uh, how old was I? Uh, 19 when I started promoting. Uh, wow. 19, 20 years old. Um, 20 years old. Uh, so uh, I started with the uh, Vets Halls around Sonoma County. Sebastopol Vets Hall uh, was my favorite. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and then I moved on to uh, leasing the River Theater in Guerneville for uh, a little over a year. And we showed movies five nights a week and did two shows a month. And, and then I got to, I, I hit a glass ceiling. Uh, and the glass ceiling was that uh, all of Northern California was considered Bill Graham's territory. So I could only buy talent up to a certain level. And then if I wanted to buy uh, more well-known talent, that would draw more customers, more ticket buyers uh, I got shot out because uh, it, was, it was Bill's territory, so I applied for a job, and I was hired as the office schlep. <laughs> uh, I thought I was something because I had been promoting concerts in Sonoma County, and I was managing this fairly successful folk rock band uh, that was a big fish in the small pond of Sonoma County, and so I was pretty inflated with myself and uh, mm -hmm. went down there, applied for a job, got hired, and... And yeah, I got put, uh, uh, relieved the receptionist uh, during lunch, uh, <laughs> and, uh, took out the garbage, loaded the soda machine, ran errands. Go get a hamburger from people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I did that for about a year. I kept my mouth shut and just tried to do the best job that I could. Mm -hmm. And I got a break. 
That was really nice. And then you ended up you ended up as vice president and uh, partner in part of the presentations and all of those multi platinum artists. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I eventually um, uh, signed that. Well, not eventually, but uh, shortly after, about a year after I started there, uh, I signed the Neville Brothers uh, for management and. Uh, Bill Graham was a big Neville Brothers fan, so it wouldn't have happened without Bill, mm-hmm. uh, because I was still pretty young, and uh, I was a Neville fan, and I got introduced to them uh, via a mutual friend, someone uh, who lived in Petaluma and worked in Petaluma for many, many, many years, John Brennis, who had the music group. Yes, who's up yeah. uh, in Oregon now. Yes, he's up in Oregon by the, uh, uh, where is it, where they do the Shakespeare Ashton. Festival? Ashton. 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 that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and so, uh, uh, John introduced me uh, to them, and I gave... I, Flew out to where they were playing. They were on tour with Huey Lewis and the News, who mm-hmm. was, you know, huge at that time, coming yeah. off of the sports album, and oh, yeah. you know, was selling out multiple amphitheater dates uh, and markets. And and he, he brought the Neville Brothers out as his opening act. And so I flew out to one of their tour dates. It was in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, gave them my pitch, and then convinced them that when the tour came through San Francisco, uh, to come back into the office and meet again and. At that second meeting in San Francisco, um, um, I had Bill all lined up to uh, come in and be the closer. And, uh, so I'll never forget that day because uh, I was still the office schlep. I was still office schlepping. And so I was like trying to like run all my errands and do all my shit before, excuse me, uh, before they uh, showed up because I don't want them to see me loading up the soda machine or taking out the garbage. Uh, so I tried to get all that done. And then when they showed up at the office, I was all done, and I was kind of waiting for them, and they showed up. And so when I got there, I put them in the conference room and the four brothers, and then I ran into Bill's office and said, Bill, 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 they're here, they're here, they're here. <laughs> and Bill was like, well, they just looked up from his desk and slipped in me and nodded and said, okay. And I go ahead and start the meeting without me. And uh, and so I left his office, and so we went into the conference room and, you know, giving them our pitch, what we could do for them, what, it, you know, what, we, what management would be like. And um, I don't know about half hour into the meeting, perfectly timed, of course, mm-hmm. Bill walks in, and then it was over. You know, they signed right there. And, yeah. Because you know, he was that kind of guy. Yeah, he was. Presence, you know. And that was the first act that I started managing at Bill Graham Presents, and then I went on to manage several uh, platinum artists and had a pretty big run. Yeah, you had, what, uh, Cheryl Crow and... Uh, yeah, Cheryl, you know, just before her first record, um, and that, that was a challenge, uh, but the Neville Brothers and all of Aaron Neville stuff... Um, mm-hmm. All the stuff is solo records and his, uh, his duets with Linda Ronstadt and Trisha Yearwood. And uh, and then I also managed a band called the Jim Blossoms that had a couple of platinum artists, uh, platinum records. I remember them. And uh, got a few big hits. And uh, then some other bands as well. Monster Magnet, which is a hard rock band. Yeah. Uh, managed them for a brief stint. And uh, yeah, a band called All, A-L-L, a, a, a really a, a seminal punk rock band. Wow. They were really a pleasure. They were, they were good guys. So you cut your teeth on some pretty good products. I was lucky. I was really lucky, you know, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not any smarter than a lot of other managers that I respect and admire. But uh, I, I just got lucky, you know. And I say that really, honestly, not self-effacing, because I worked hard on all my acts, and some made it, and most didn't. And so, what was I, a genius one time and a moron the next? You know, it's, <laughs> it's obviously a bigger picture here and an alchemy and what breaks and what doesn't, and that's beyond me. Yeah, well, that's kind of what happens. You know, some make it and some don't. We work yeah. our butts off doing yeah. what we can do. So, what, in 96, you went to A&M? Was that, that was after Bill was... Uh, yeah, Bill died in the helicopter crash, and uh, that was a, you know, it was a big shock and a really sad chapter in, uh, in, in my 
you know, business with life as well, you know, and then of course for the company. You know, Bill was such a big guy. I mean, you know, I had a relationship with Bill, but I was just, you know, one of hundreds of people that had a relationship with Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, you know, when he passed, of course, the company changed. Uh, the music business used to come to us because of Bill right. up in Northern California, and, you know, and when he passed, that started to change, and, and I was getting burnt out on managing artists, so I got an offer to uh, work at Eggie to take a job at A&M Records, and um, so after thinking about it and really not really wanting to, needing a break from managing bands, and there was really nothing else at BGP that I wanted to do. I didn't want to just be a hanger-on, even though I was one of the vice presidents that bought the company. I was an owner, but yeah. and I just wanted to just hang out. Uh, so I, yeah, I took the gig. I took the gig and uh, moved the family down to L.A. and uh, worked at A&M Records for about three years. That was general manager, right? Yeah, yeah. I ended as a general manager, and uh, uh, the label then was sold um, as part of Philip's sale of Polygram to... Uh, yeah. To uh, well, what, what was Universal Seagrams? Seagrams, Seagrams that owned yeah. Universal. Universal, and they yeah they merged all of the labels into the Universal labels, and mm-hmm. so then I was trying to think of what to do, and yeah, I, I, yeah, I wasn't crazy about LA. Uh, my wife Debbie didn't didn't like LA at all, mm-hmm. and so we we had decided pretty much that we were really going to move to New York, back to New York, or back up to Sonoma County, and I just love Sonoma County, so we came back up here. When was that? That was around when, like, 2000? It was just before 2000. Yeah, yeah. it was just, uh, it just the, uh, yeah, we, uh, my daughter was, uh, Amuna was born up here in 1999, so in October. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was October of 1999 that we moved up here, back up here. Well, and then in 2001, you became president of Tower Records, 33rd Street Records. Yeah, I started a label for, for uh, Tower Records and uh, called 33rd Street Records, and that was a really nice run. That was a that was a good experience. Uh, Tower Records people were wonderful. Um, you know, Russ Solomon's. And I, I've just been really lucky. I got to work with some really colorful personalities, huge personalities, and really talented, smart, really legendary figures in the music business. With Russ Solomon at Tower and Bill Graham, of course, and and a little bit with um, uh, the folks at A&M Records, Herb and Jerry. Not much. They were they were mostly out uh, by the time I was there. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but colorful people, colorful, big personalities, big figures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The music business had a lot of those big Yeah, they had a lot colorful. of those big, colorful people. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of gone corporate now. There's not as many. Yes, and, yeah, yes and no. It's just it's different, you know, and it's not my scene. It's not my thing, you know, just like when I was younger, it wasn't, you know, the older people. It was, you know, it changes, changes with every generation. Yeah, it does. Well, the whole music business has changed now. Very much so, yeah. It Digital did. files have changed everything. Everything is different now. So in 2005, uh, you became the president of uh, a digital media company. Um, yeah. And that was a big change. Tell me about that. Well, uh, that the whole, the whole transformation to digital files and music was already happening, and it was something that I was interested in. I wasn't really, you know, terribly strongly attracted to. But when Tower Records uh, um, uh, shut down and uh, label 33rd Street was sold off, um, uh, I uh, uh, one of the clients that I had at uh, 33rd Street uh, offered me a gig. Uh, I talked to them and offered me a gig to run this uh, digital media company called Outthink, and it was it was a very good experience. Uh, it really it introduced me to. Uh, the world of digital media, which is uh, very important now, and uh, I never really felt a you know strong attraction to it. Uh, 
uh, you know, when Facebook first launched, I was there. You know, when Friendster first launched, I was I, I was there in, in this digital media company. And so signed up and, you know, created pages and tried to learn what the user experience was on, uh, on those social media platforms. But uh, never really felt much attraction to it, to tell you the truth. Uh, and to this day, I mean, I, I'm probably one of the older Facebook page users because I created a page right when it started, literally, mm-hmm. right when it started to understand what the experience was. Uh, but uh, after starting it, I never went back on it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly getting these notifications that all these friends are waiting for me to respond. But, uh, <laughs> I figure, you know, you know what? I, I'm not hard to find. You found me, right? <laughs> you needed someone to come on the show. You found me. I so found you. <laughs> I'm not hard to find. So, you know, if someone wants to talk to me, they'll pick up the phone or send me an email. Yeah. Well, you know, and you're well known in, in a lot of this, yeah. the areas around here. You know, I'm one of many, 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 you know, players that uh, enjoyed a very, very good life in the music business during what I call the fat years, uh, who then had a transition. And uh, uh, some of my friends' uh, peers, I should be more, more accurately, uh, transitioned into real estate. Uh, some uh, tried to create their own startups and, you know, new businesses. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah. Well, that's what we had to do. I did the same thing. You know, I was VP of Fantasy Records, and I designed and built and ran all those studios. Made lots of records. We were talking about, I think you and I were talking about the fact that uh, I think Discog says I have 200 records under my name. No one person today can do that kind of that that, that amount of work yeah. in that kind of time frame because now it's spread out everywhere. It's uh, yeah, it's spread out everywhere. Most people are doing a lot of basic tracks in their you know their home studios. Uh, yeah, you know the whole recording thing is, uh, is is very different. Although, you know, the funny thing is is that uh, uh, depending on like how how uh, uh, I don't know what's the right word. Uh, uh, how uh, impeccable mm. you want your recording to be, mm-hmm. uh, you still go into a studio. You know, you know, and what yeah. happened, I, a lot of it started back in, oh, in the late 70s and 80s when, when the record companies weren't putting up the money for the budgets anymore. And so producers started, I remember uh, Roz Shrank at, at uh, Warner's called me up and said, Jimmy, I'm only going to pay 125 an hour and up to this cap, and that's it. The producer pays for it from them. So they started going to the small studios yeah. and then coming to the big studio to mix it and all. And that's kind of what's happening a, a lot now, too. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just mastering. They'll go in to a regular studio. But it depends on the artist, too. If you've got a, an artist like, you know, I, I work with Van Morrison a lot, and I can't take Van into one of these small no. studios somewhere. You know, you've got yeah. a big artist like that. They, you're going to have to go into a, a yeah. real facility. So they're still yeah. making them, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and, and really, I think there's, there's definitely... There's definitely a difference uh, working in a studio and in the studio environment than working in a home studio and you know, something that's a little smaller and more digital. Um, uh, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it certainly has made uh, making a record, producing a record, so much more available and accessible. Absolutely. Probably too available and too accessible. There are some records that really shouldn't have been made. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of records that shouldn't be made. And, and I probably made a couple of them. <laughs> you know. And then there's the, there's, the, there's the YouTube thing. You know, Justin Bieber put his stuff up on YouTube, and, and that was the end of it. You know, bam, all of a sudden, yeah. it was Usher found him, and yeah. away he goes. So you were a board member of Neris. I don't know if you still yes. are. And uh, you were also uh, uh, 
uh, the Bill Graham Foundation, the Memorial Foundation. I think you were president, and uh, I, I, was, I, yeah, yeah. I think you're still on the I board. I was the executive director for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, yes, I'm still a board member of, uh, of both. And, uh, um, yeah, enjoy my enjoy my work on both boards. Well, tell me about the Bill Graham Memorial Foundation. They do well, some good work. Yeah, the Bill Graham Memorial Foundation was started uh, shortly after Bill's death. Uh, something that most people don't know is that Bill was – a very, very, very active philanthropist and activist, really. Uh, uh, if, if he, uh, I mean, there, there was a there was a line of people. I mean, figuratively. I mean, there wasn't a line literally, but every day there'd be someone that would come in and make a pitch to Bill uh, in the office uh, to uh, produce a benefit or to support some cause. And if uh, if Bill felt that they had uh, a, a good cause uh, or 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 were uh, were worthy of help. He was the first one to, to take action. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really personified uh, the definition of charity and what we call sadaka in uh, Judaism, which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, to be uh, it should be performed with uh, alacrity and frequency. There you go. And Bill was was that. I mean, he'd be the first one to raise his hand and and take an active stand and uh, put his money where his mouth was. But he supported. What most, and so people know that, of course, with Live Aid and Amnesty International and, you know, some of the big benefits that he helped produce. But what most people don't know is that he gave unstintingly to many, many, many smaller charities uh, that often didn't have any other funding uh, but him. I mean, he's, you know, he started Rock Med, you know, and it's mm-hmm. a great example, you know. I mean, that's, you know, or at least was instrumental in the starting of Rock Med, I should say that. You know, there were, of course, some very fine people that, I did most of the lifting, but uh, you know he supported it, and uh, um, and so when when he passed, uh, we wanted to continue that legacy, mm-hmm. and so the Bill Graham Memorial Foundation gives out probably eighty grants a year, mm-hmm. all between two and five thousand dollars in amounts to a lot of small grassroots uh, organizations, uh, some of which don't have any other funding, uh, but from the Bill Graham Memorial Foundation, they tend to be on the West Coast and in the Bay Area, and they mm-hmm. tend to be arts related. Uh, but uh, we're open to, you know, all good work, all good worthy work. Yeah, I remember I was around for the beginning of all that when, when it was the family dog was was running. They started out at the Longshoreman's Hall, and, and Bill hadn't uh, didn't have the Fillmore yet. Yeah, no, no, Bill started. Bill, Bill was Bill was in the Bay Area. He worked with the Meme Troupe. He was a frustrated actor. He yeah. wanted to act, <laughs> and uh, you know the Meme Troupe people, uh, you know, were. Way cooler than Bill. I mean, <laughs> Bill was older than everyone. You got to remember when Bill came out here, he was already in his early 30s. Yeah, you know, he'd gone through the Korean War, and uh, you know, of course, his whole Holocaust experience as well. So when he came out here, he was a, he was a different he was different as a person than most of his you know friends and people that he was you know trying to you know be with and get something going with. Uh, but he wanted to be an actor, and and the Meme Troop didn't think he was good enough, but he definitely was good at telling people what to do and <laughs> <laughs> managing situations. So they made him their, their manager, their business manager. And uh, uh, there was a uh, impromptu, unpermitted, anti-war meme troop performance in Golden Gate Park where some members got arrested. And so they organized a benefit uh, to raise money to get him out of jail and for their legal defense. And it was in a loft in San Francisco, and Bill showed up and saw the line around the block, and the light bulb went off. <laughs> and the rest is history, yeah. And it was my rabbi that got him the Fillmore. 
Yes. My we, yeah. my synagogue was next door was to the Fillmore, yeah. and they shut him down, and he went to my rabbi and said, you know, uh, and he told him his real name, Wolfgang Gwajanka, and that yeah. he'd come out of the Holocaust, and my rabbi made one phone call, and the rest was done. Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of characters that really helped Bill out that are unknown, are really unspoken, are really. And one was uh, the rabbi, and the other was a, uh, a man named Sullivan. Um, his last name was Sullivan. I don't remember his first name, but he was he was kind of like the, you know, kind of a godfather figure in the Fillmore at that time, mm-hmm. the Fillmore district at that time. And uh, uh, he had, uh, see, I, I don't know what he had. He either had, he had some kind of liquor license or something, you know, at the Fillmore. And uh, Bill wanted to do rock music, and you know, and at that time, you know, rock music was anti-establishment, so there was a big, a lot of friction in the city, you know, between the police department and city hall, and rock music and rock concerts, and and the whole anti-war movement and everything. Uh, so, uh, but Sullivan, you know, I think saw in Bill a kindred spirit, you know, a survivor. You right. know, I mean, it wasn't easy for African Americans then, and it wasn't easy for. You know, a kid, a German kid off the boat, a Jewish German kid off the boat that lost his whole family, you know, mm-hmm. well, almost all his family. So mm-hmm. his sister survived. My sisters uh, survived. Uh, that was tough times. Was tough times, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this man named uh, something Sullivan, I forgot his first name, really helped him out a lot, too, and helped him get his start. But then just Bill just smoked everyone. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the family dog opened up their arms and welcomed them and said, yeah, let's do some stuff together. And... You know, I mean, God bless Chet Hounds, but, you know, I mean, Bill just smoked him. <laughs> well, and, and part of the reason, because I remember I was a working musician in those days, and, you know, God bless the family dog and, and, and Chet Hounds and everybody, but the money got funny, and there were several times when they just walked and nobody got paid. Yeah. And Bill, God bless him, whatever the deal was, that was the deal, but he paid me. Yeah. And I remember he made deals with people. He said, okay, I'm going to pay you now. And you're going to get this gig, but you're going to give me a gig in a year or two with, at the same amount. Yeah. And then they get real famous and have to come back for $5. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's there's all sorts of legendary stories about Bill and the yeah. beginnings of the promoter. There's a couple of really good documentaries uh, mm-hmm. that are out now. I mean, there are, there, 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 I mean, Bill wasn't the only, um, I mean, he was like, considered the, like the godfather of the promoters, but another man that was really instrumental in starting the whole promoter business in America was Frank Barcelona. Uh-huh. And most people don't know about Frank Barcelona, but Frank Barcelona uh, was the head of a booking agency called Premier Talent, mm-hmm. and Premier had all the huge acts. And Frank was the, one of the first ones to bring over the English acts. Mm-hmm. And so the whole English invasion came through Frank Barcelona. And Frank literally handpicked promoters and gave them their territory. So, uh-huh. okay, Bill, you're going to have this West Coast, and, you know, Ron Delsner, you're going to have this, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and just, you know, divided up the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Frank really was... He was the mover and shaker. He was the guy that really organized the whole promoter business, you mm-hmm. know, and concert touring, you know, because, of course, it was in his best interest as the booking agent. You know, sure. he didn't want to send the band someplace and not know what the hell was going to happen. Yeah. Or if they would get paid, uh-huh. or if there would be proper production. Yeah. Um, all those things that were really kind of loosey-goosey and, you know, really uh, tough to manage. And so, you know, having these promoters that he set up that uh, that he could groom and uh, that would do good work was really important for the development of that business. And, of course, now, the, you know, the music business, uh, for musicians at least, mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for the touring business, you know, they'd be in real trouble. In real trouble, yeah, because that's where it is The recorded music business isn't creating the same revenue that it once did, of course. So... 
talk about morphing into Second Octave and Somo and, and all that. You you started your own company, Second Octave. Well, after you know, after Tower uh, went down, um, I, um, I I was I did a stint as the, I had time, and so I, and the and the Bill Graham Memorial Foundation wasn't doing very well. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it was floundering, but it was kind of just you know. There, there, there was no real, you know, strong energy with vision and just, you know, with connections. There were some very good people that were working, you know, that were on the board, that were, you know, that uh, uh, that were giving their, their, their heart into it. But it, uh, it, it needed something. It needed something. And, uh, and it, it certainly wasn't because of me, but, uh, you know, I played a part just like others did. And... Uh, we um, um, uh, we got it back going, and so then, you know, after it was going, I you know, cha- uh, charity work, uh, nonprofit work doesn't pay much. I needed right. to try and make some more money, <laughs> <laughs> running out of money. So yes, yeah, so I hung my own shingle and and uh, started a, a management company, a small booking agency, licensed and bought myself as a booking agency, and then started promoting at uh, Sonoma Mountain Village. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I'm kind of you know, I'm taking a little step back in that. Uh, you know, I've, um, uh, I'm, not wor- I'm not really managing actively. I only co-manage one artist now, Joe Satriani, with a friend of mine from Bill Graham Presents Days, uh, Mick Brigden, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and promoting the concerts. Uh, but uh, we, we, um, uh, we gave the rest of the business to, uh, to the employees that we had and uh, wish them luck. <laughs> you know, well, you've done a lot like Bill did. You've mentored a lot of these guys. I, I've watched you do this. And, and uh, so you've taken a lot of these young, young guys in their 30s or whatever from around here and and helped them and mentored them into this. Yeah, it's been really gratifying. Yeah, they're really talented. There's a lot of really talented young people here, and, you know, they would have been fine without me, you know, but, no, you know, no. it's tough, you know, I mean, because it's hard to play Major League Ball up here, you know, and yeah, uh, you know, that was the thing with Bill. You know, Bill brought Major League Ball, music business, you know, yeah. baseball to, <laughs> to the Bay Area, and without Bill, it wouldn't have happened, you That's know. Right. And so I tried to provide a little of that to the, the people that were working in our office, the younger people that were in our office. And it's doing very well now. You're, you're, you're yeah, 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 yeah. I get a shout out to Bryce and Isabel and Josh, and you know they're all doing great. They're all they were doing great before me, and they're doing great now. I mean, really, they were doing they were doing great before, and they're doing great now. Yeah, but you transformed that whole thing. You did a, a, a deal with with, uh, with uh, Gerard. At, uh, uh, you yeah, we got, a, we, we, got, we got a good thing. We got a good thing going over at uh, Sonoma Mountain Village, Somo Concerts. Uh, it's uh, arguably the coolest, hippest venue uh, mm-hmm. in Sonoma County. I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. People come and they have a lot of fun. So we have a few seconds left here. Tell me about where the future is going for you and for the... the well, for me, the future is retirement. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I'll be 64 uh, at the end of this month, so well, will that's you quite still enough. Me and will you still feed really, me? that's that's enough. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think Sonoma County has a, just a wealth of talent, yeah, and, and a real and a real sound musically. And so I think there's there's good things for Sonoma County music. That's great. Well, thank you, Morty, for being here. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. Uh, uh, this is uh, Rabbi Ted's radio show, talking with Rabbi Ted. And there's no bumper music today. We have a technical difficulty, so I won't sing for you because we'll be off the air for good if we do that. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, this is KPCA, uh, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, and streaming on KPCA at pca.tv. <laughs>
Welcome back to Talking with Rabbi Ted. My name is Jim Stern. I'm filling in for the rabbi who's on vacation. And uh, we're going to welcome our second guest, former mayor of Petaluma, Pamela Torliot. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you very much, Jim. Good to be here. Well, yeah, it's good to have you here. So you're a fourth-generation Petaluman. I am. I am. You tell me about that. That's, you know, pretty solid here in Petaluma. Grandfather and great-grandfather and all those people for you. Yeah, and, you know, it's there's the Torliettes, but there's also my mom's side of the family, uh, mm-hmm. which is the, the mellow side um, that my uh, grandmother uh, descended from. And uh, they came here many, many years ago. But, um, yeah, they had... Uh, Quite a few children in the family in my grandmother's uh, era, and they grew up out in the smallest area and uh, ended up going, my grandmother uh, was uh, going to Tamales High. She was the, I don't know what, what they called it, it was something having to do with um, when you're a senior or whatever, they had like the the princess or the prom queen uh-huh. kind of thing, but it was more the egg queen or or the uh, something out there and uh, yeah so so been a long time been a long time yeah I guess so I guess your your grandfather was a rural uh, mail carrier my grandfather uh, Charles Torliette yes was a rural route uh, mail carrier for over 30 years wow. and he loved his job he just absolutely loved it in the uh, mail that he delivered, uh, for the most part, was up on Sonoma Mountain, wow. and, and so uh, he knew many of those uh, people very well, uh, and knew what was going on because you know the mailman always knows what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> yes, the mailman is the one that knows. So you graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, yes? I did. I did. It was a beautiful four years. And then you came back to Sonoma County and got involved. I did, and. Um, you know, I, I love this town. Uh, Petaluma is just has been so good to, I think, so many people, mm-hmm. including uh, my family. And uh, I came back and, and was ready to come back, even though Santa Barbara is an absolutely gorgeous place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, wanted to just really um, immerse myself in local politics. And, uh, and one of the ways that I got involved was uh, Congresswoman Lynn Woolsey, mm-hmm. um, who was then Councilwoman Lynn Woolsey, uh, took me under her wing and got me involved and introduced me to people and suggested that I, you know, get involved with the Sonoma County Democratic Party um, and get involved in local uh, committees and commissions. And uh, she really uh, started it all for me. And uh, you, I don't know if it was her, that, uh, that whether she did it or not, but in 92, uh, you were the youngest appointee to the Planning Commission in Petaluma's history. Is that right? It, that is absolutely right. And I, I believe I still uh, have that uh, uh, honor. Uh, <laughs> and Lynn was on the city council at the time. Uh, and um, it was really a, a wonderful experience. There was some uh, really interesting people, and I actually I, I know uh, Rabbi Ted and 
and all of you folks, uh, Marcel Feibusch was on the, yes. the commission at the time. Yes. Uh, Don Bennett was on the commission at oh, the time. Um, and and so it was really it was really interesting and, and getting to know people and working with people with different views. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then four years later, you were the youngest woman ever elected to the Petaluma City Council, yes? Yeah, I was. Just mm-hmm. um, a trailblazer. <laughs> well, it, it has been an interesting ride. You know, it's not all wins. But you always learn, you know, as you go, um, as you go along, and uh, and the decisions that get made, um, you definitely have an impact on on them and shaping our community. Yeah, and that's so important to get involved, and especially somebody who has not just the passion, but the education and and, and the, the pathway is leading towards these things. Some people get involved, and they were, you know, they were a milkman or something, and. You know, it's great, it's wonderful, but they don't have the training and, and that path. So over the next 15 years, you tackled some of the toughest issues. Uh, and from what I remember, you brought a pretty collaborative approach to a lot of complex and very contentious issues in this county, transportation and land use being two of them, as I remember. Absolutely. Um, one of the the things that I am uh, most proud of and in having shaped our our community and it wasn't just me but it was definitely my one of my votes it was a a, a decision to put an urban growth boundary on the ballot in the city of Petaluma and that was a up-and-coming thing that Sonoma County Conservation Action and Bill Cordham mm-hmm. um, was really advocating for, which basically drew a line around our city and said, hey, we are going to stop building outside of this line. And uh, every city, I believe, in Sonoma County now has an urban uh, growth boundary. But at the time, in 1998, when the city of Petaluma uh, voters voted on it, I believe the the vote was 70% in favor of approving the line uh, that we put on the ballot for the voters to look at. And um, as a result of that, we have stayed within that line. That line has been very, um, you know, consistent. um, And we have shaped our land use and transportation planning around that and trying to provide housing and alternate modes of transportation uh, for people in the community uh, within that line. And now, because we aren't expanding out past that boundary, the building and and the growth is within that boundary. And so, I mean, I've been in Petaluma for 41 years. (laughs) I've been coming here my whole life. We had had family here, and we had a place in Rio So I've been coming here for over 75 years. But what I've noticed in the last 40-something years that I've been here is that because of what, and, and more recently, is that we're building a lot of stuff in this town now, and we're not necessarily building any infrastructure to support that. We're not doing anything with the roads, parking, and it's, you know, Petaluma is getting pretty crowded, and there's a lot. How do you feel about all that, the fact that, that, that uh, we need to do some stuff here in Petaluma that within that boundary now? Well, as someone that is um, a a former uh, mayor, and I also served on the Metropolitan Transportation Commission in the Nine Bay Area counties, Mm -hmm. where we distributed over a billion dollars worth of transportation dollars to those nine counties and made priorities, 
um, you know, the the funding um, is crucial when you're talking about street and road maintenance, and, uh, reconstruction, um, and any other mode of transportation, whether it's bike, pedestrian, uh, rail, uh, and or highway. And and one of the things that we didn't have for many years, which uh, we were really a, a big part of, and, and I know the Petaluma City Council was trying to get the Sonoma Marin Area Rail Transit smart and up and running. And uh, it has been, I think, something that is providing a choice for people, an alternative choice, mm -hmm. um, than getting on the highway. Um, it's a it's a big deal. Can you imagine if all the ridership on Smart right now was on Highway 101 commuting? I mean, it's already bad as it is. Oh, yeah. um, so I, I think that that was a real critical piece of infrastructure. Um, and the city of Petaluma has its challenges funding-wise um, for for many different things, including you know public safety and uh, just our public works department to to be able to paint lines on the street, to putting up stop signs, to um, our finance department, our park and rec department. Um, we, we have a lot of funding challenges, and, and because of income, or income stream, uh, you know, revenue. And, um, and so we, you know, that's why the council is there, to create priorities on spending. Would we love to be able to spend as much money as possible on everything? Absolutely. Um, and so it's a real it's a real balance and juggling act. I can I can see that. What about the crosstown? You know, like Rainier and stuff. Uh, when I when I moved here, I guess it's since '62 they've been talking about it. When I moved here, it was a done deal, and that's 41 years ago, and it's still not a done deal. What What do you see happening with with, with crosstown? Uh, I don't know if Rainier is the only answer, but for certain, certainly it's only uh, the few crosstown feeders that we do have are jammed up. And, you know, you have to watch, now you have to watch what time of day you try to get across town because it's almost impossible at some times. Absolutely. And I, I think that there are building blocks in, uh, in place for Rainier, but I I have to say that it's been a promise, as you said, a done deal since 1962. And the reality is, is there was no funding for it. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is has been, I think, one of the, the myths that people aren't just building it. Like the city council isn't, you know, building it. It's a it's a political battle. No, actually, it's an, a financial issue. And uh, the state and federal government has said that they will not be funding any of that um, because it is a local serving crosstown connector. Are we going to have parts of it built um, in the near future. Uh, we're going to have the what they call the donut hole that goes under Highway 101 mm -hmm. um, constructed because when I was on the council, we were able to work with Caltrans and use some of our redevelopment funds that were set aside um, to actually do the studies for um, making that happen. So when Caltrans widens the freeway through Petaluma, um, they're going to reconstruct the overpass that goes over the smart rail tracks just north of East Washington uh, interchange, and they'll be able to lift the highway high enough to allow traffic to go under the freeway. The challenge continues to be 
how you cross over the, the smart tracks and the river. And that part, as far as I know, is completely unfunded. Um, so, you know, there again, there are challenges, but you have to make incremental steps along the way. I remember in 1992, Carol Barless mm-hmm. was on the council. Um, there were uh, a variety of folks, and one of the things that they ended up doing is uh, authorizing the upgrades to East Washington and McDowell. And lots of people don't remember back I, I, then. I remember that. But it was a huge, oh huge uh, controversy yeah. um, to widen through that area um, and improve it. And I can't imagine what it would be like today if, if they had not taken that brave step to move forward with the the improvements in that intersection. And we think it's congested, but it would have really been a, a big stumbling block for people to get across town. It was, at the time they, they did it, it was getting pretty bad. It, that intersection actually isn't so bad now. Uh, it's, it's pretty reasonable. D Street is pretty, pretty tough to get around because there's only, you know, and that, there's one signal and, you know, it's just, and then there's a lot of people in Petaluma now. There's an awful lot of people who have moved here because of fires, because, you know, there's a lot of publicity about Petaluma being, there was a, we were like one of the top ten places to raise a child in the United States. That came out mm-hmm. nationally, and it brings a lot of people. And, uh, of course, now with the holidays, <laughs> it's almost impossible to get around here. So, uh, you know, there's a few things that I, that I noticed that you had done. You were um, a member of the Association of Bay Area Governments, ABAG, which I think is a funny name, ABAG, <laughs> and the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, and the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. You were a member of that, and the Water Advisory Committee. Tell me a little bit about all those. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I served um, on the Bay Area Air Quality Management District for almost, I think, 11 years, and uh, it was it was really an honor to, to be there. Um, many challenges that we have on air quality, and people really don't, you, can, you don't necessarily see bad air quality. Sometimes you do. You can see the haze, but um, when it comes to particulate matter, um, you know, with wood, wood burning uh, stoves and, and things of that nature, people don't realize how that impacts your health, not only inside the house but outside the house and um, from the from the emissions um, and in addition it's the the smog and uh, like these wildfires I mean it has just contributed uh, significantly to to uh, poor air quality in our area but um, it, it, it it was really um, a wonderful experience and the people that you get to meet uh, that are from other areas in the nine Bay Area counties and and how they deal with issues. And it, it's very collaborative. I, I, I would say even more collaborative um, at that level uh, in funding uh, items because people say, you know, you really need this. You know, you advocate for your, your area. Um, and then the Water Advisory Committee um, has completely changed um, because um, now the state had uh, has instituted um, some uh, new laws to create um, these uh, water, uh, uh, basically on watershed almost, um, uh, areas, and we have our own 
I don't want to say they call it the swag, but I don't, I'm not sure if it's the swag or not, um, where there's some appointees from the board of supervisors, from the city council, that are dealing with groundwater issues in addition to water supply issues. Yes, I understand. That was a big contention, groundwater issues, because people always mm-hmm. felt that that's their water and it's under their land and belongs to them. And, and I've, I've heard a lot of contention about it. I don't know enough about it to, to speak to any points of it, but I'm sure that that was quite a factor. Well, we have an allocation from the Sonoma, I, I want to say Sonoma County Water Agency because that's what it used to be called, but it, I believe it's called Sonoma Water now. They changed the name, and the Board of Supervisors uh, sits as the decision makers on that on that agency, and they um, only supply the, our water from the Russian River. Um, now they're very involved with the groundwater, and in the city of Petaluma, I, I, we had held the line for many years on the fact that you don't want to use groundwater as part of your your supply of water that you are relying on on a consistent basis. You should really, in my opinion, um, rely on what we are able to receive through the water agency um, from the Russian River because we need that groundwater in emergencies. Mm -hmm. That is our emergency backup supply, and we can only provide about 10% of the city's needs of of water uh, through groundwater. Mm -hmm. So relying upon that as your regular use is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And also the drought, as I understand it, collapsed a lot of those areas underground where the water was being stored in is there any idea how long it would take to re- refill that and to, to make those spaces available again underground? You know, I'm. I think part of what there was um, some some of that that occurred uh, way back in the the late '90s and um, and, and the early 2000s with the water agency because they were using their emergency wells to supplement the amount of water that was coming uh, through the pipeline to the water contractors. And so that subsidence um, did become a concern, but I think um, there was a, you know, contentious but collaborative (laughs) effort amongst the contractors to try to really think about a long-term, you know, solutions for for our water supply here in in Sonoma County. That's always been a big problem uh, in modern times is water. And uh, probably in the future will become even more of a problem, stuff that's going to have to be dealt with along the line. I would agree. So you morphed. You, you like many of us, said, okay, it's time for another chapter in my life. And you stepped, uh, a lateral move, I would say, away from the political scene. And, um, and tell us about that. Well, um, I still I still make sure that I have a, my use my vested interest in our community to help others mm-hmm. be leaders. Um, you know, Mayor Barrett, I'm very you know very uh, glad that she was able to take the reins um, mm-hmm. after Mayor Glass. Um, th- those are very exciting um, times, and and advocating and helping people even on a national level. Mm-hmm. So that's a big long story, right? <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, my partner uh, Leo Girdelli and I um, we have a business superior systems where we work on dairies in Marin and Sonoma County with sanitation equipment, manure equipment, things of that nature, and that's our primary business. But 
We also started in 2006, actually the year that I was elected mayor of Petaluma, a business called Progressive Pastures. And that is a grass-fed beef business. Um, all of our pasture was certified organic. All of the inputs, and if we had to supplement with organic alfalfa, um, is organic. And so I could have certified our animals organic with a lot of paperwork, but we really didn't need to because we were meeting you know, the demand that we had, and that's about, that's about it. Um, so we were providing this, we think, superior product uh, with this, what we call, uh, and what is called a Wagyu cross. Uh, the Kobe beef region um, is where the Wagyu uh, uh, genetics comes from, and we had, I think, perfected it by having this Wagyu cross, which provides intermuscular fat uh, through the, the meat, which the fat is where the taste is. <laughs> and uh, and so we were selling primarily to Petaluma Market for 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. uh, they would buy our carcasses and cut them down and have them in the meat case. And unfortunately, and I think this is what you're getting to, is we were told um, this last December 31, uh, a couple days, and as of a couple days ago, um, and all the local ranchers in the Petaluma or in the Petaluma area, and all the local ranchers um, will not have a harvest facility for their meats, and that's from beef, pork, lamb, um, Marin Sun Farms. Um, who took over from Rancho um, in the slaughterhouse on Petaluma Boulevard North, uh, sent out a notice in mid-October uh, to tell us that they were no longer going to provide that service. And as a result, um, we basically are put out of business because the next local uh, slaughter facility is located um, probably about five hours away up in Humboldt County. And my partner, Leo, and I said, we're just not going to do that. We're not going to take our animals five hours away uh, in a trailer to be harvested and then ship it back down because one of the things that we really um, thought was important was our carbon footprint. And we were able to grow, harvest, and sell our product within 16 miles. And that is really unique. And amongst the other things that were unique about our, our business. And we still will be able to uh, do some on site harvesting, but we have to sell live animals mm -hmm. uh, to people. And, and so I need to make sure I pull you know, a certain amount of people together so I can harvest an animal and have it cut and wrapped. Mm -hmm. But it's a very different business than you and all your listeners being able to just go into Petaluma Market and just buy a steak mm -hmm. or buy, you know, some ground beef or, or whatever it is. And the community is going to lose because of the variety that was out there um, from many local ranchers um, and the quality. And I think we're going to unfortunately see a lot less quality uh, meat out there. I wonder if that's going to affect this. It used to be farm to table. Now they call it farm to fork. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there are a number of restaurants here in Petaluma who tout the fact that, you know, that this is locally grown uh, uh, meat and, uh, it's, you know, it's right here and on the table in a short amount of time and it's all 
non-caca, so to speak, and everything is is up and up. It's good, clean food and been processed properly and been inspected properly and so forth. So that's probably going to have an effect on some of these restaurants, too. Didn't you sell to some restaurants, too? Yes, and, and it's it's devastating for, actually, the restaurant and, uh, community because uh, we were selling to Mateos, and uh, he would buy whole carcasses. Uh, it's up in uh, Healdsburg, mm-hmm. um, almost kind of across from the hotel. He does amazing, amazing things with food. Uh, he's from the Yucatan area. Uh, originally, and um, and we would we would go up there to just have dinner, to have our beef, and have him prepare it. And um, he was so devastated to find out that he can't get our meat and a lot of other providers. I mean, he's he's really um, stuck in a situation where he may go more seafood way because he has certain standards for the quality of meat that he will serve to, to people, mm-hmm. and um, he's not able to necessarily get it here locally. What a shame. It's too bad because uh, I know I, I'm not a big meat guy anymore now. My girlfriend switched me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do, I, I would always, at Pebble Market, I always look for your meat because it was, you know, it, it was lean, even though the fat is in the, it was very lean and, and uh was good, tasty meat, and I'm sure a lot of other people feel the same way. So, what's next? Where, where are you going to go from here now? Uh, I remember when you started, I remember Itty Bitty. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> that was, I think, your first that was your first or second? Yeah, Itty Bitty was, was the first animal we harvested, yeah. and, and um, yeah, you know, it's we still have, uh, we sold a lot of our herd, but we still have the uh, mothers and our, our bulls um, you know, we were out this morning uh, feeding some organic alfalfa and, uh, to them to supplement during the cold time here and when mm-hmm. it gets raining. Um, we, um, we're we we're kind of pulling back to, to figure out what our next chapter is okay. right now. And uh, it's, it's actually very exciting. It's, um, it's a challenge, uh, but uh, I think we have uh, so many choices, um, that that's going to be the most difficult part. It's not going to be um, the the lack of, of what we have uh, available to us. Well, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm going to wait and see because I know whatever you do always is wonderful. It's always something uh, enticing and, and, and uh, genuine. And so I'm, I'm going to wait, and I think all of us are going to wait and see where your pot, where your head emerges is sort of like whack-a-mole. Where does the head pop up, you know? Hey, I'm 52 years old. I got plenty of time. You got a plenty of time. My God, I don't remember 52. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Pam, for, for, for coming here and being with us and, and telling us all your story and what's going on. And many people probably don't know a lot of the things about you that, that uh, they would found out today. And... Uh, we're just really happy. Next week, uh, in two weeks rather, Rabbi Ted will be back and uh, we'll have uh, another couple guests. I'm not sure who they are right now, but I'm, I'm sure they'll be wonderful people and I'll be sitting here at the board listening instead of having to talk. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP 103.3 FM and available on kpca.fm. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Sweet.